Welcome to this week's episode of Started for the Rest of Us. It's episode 497. I am your host, Rob Walling. And each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups using an ambitious yet a sane approach. This week, I'm answering listener questions with my friend and co-founder of Tiny Seed, Anar Volset. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. Good to have you back. If, if you've been listening to the show even for the past few months, anar has been on several episodes talking about entrepreneurship. He has experience. He went through Y Combinator in 2009. The company he started there was later sold to Google. And he's been on the sell side of many seven and eight figure SaaS acquisitions. So he has expertise. My go-to for ANR is partnerships, business development, sales, outreach, like cold calling, cold emailing, and buying and selling SaaS, valuations, pricing. That's, that's like the high level. Anything I missed in there? No, I think that's pretty, that's pretty good. You're making me sound like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross salesperson, but besides that's good, you know. You know, you're, you're going to get booed off the stage here at that startup <laughs> to the rest of us. People are like, get that guy. But, but here's the thing. You're also a developer, so you have the cred with, with the crowd. So you've been writing software for a few decades. You have a, a PhD in computer science, which, you know, I'm going to let that one slide. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We used to, when we were hiring at a company I worked at in L.A., we would get folks with a PhD in CS to apply for like a senior developer position and instantly set off a yellow a yellow flag of like, uh-oh, can this person actually write code? Can they ship code? Do they know what it's like to work in an environment? You know, when we had to say like if they didn't have work experience and they had just come out of a master's or a PhD, it was, we were just a little concerned about it. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I don't get it so much with masters, with PhD. I think you know, actually there's like a diminishing return <laughs> as you start doing PhD. Coming out of, this is a problem actually with some of the people I did, uh, you know, who were in grad school with me and, and, and later on. They were like, yeah, like I can't even get an interview because everyone thinks I'm this like non-producing, just wonk, <laughs> comes up with opinions all day. So I know the feeling. Academia can have that effect. It doesn't always do that, of course. And if, say, hey, if you want to have a conversation with ANR, especially about Tiny Seed Fund 2, just head to tinyseed.com slash invest, fill out that form. He's on the other end of that. We are starting fundraising for that fund under 506C. That's right. All right. So we are going to answer listener questions today. I've picked a nice sampling of questions about, well, about SaaS and all the stuff that, that we talk about all the time and think about it. So this first question is from Roger. Subject is documenting SaaS for a sale. And he says, I work on the technical side of a SaaS and the owner is interested in selling the company. They asked me to look into documenting the technical side, but I have no idea where to start. Do you know of any resources or have any advice? And after, let's answer this question and then actually let's flip it and talk about what you should have documented for financial and, and SaaS metrics type of stuff because I think that's interesting as well. Yeah, I think I actually think having done this a number of times, it obviously depends on the complexity of the product that's being sold. Like there's no indication here of what's what's going on. But typically, actually quite surprisingly, I think the technical documentation and the sort of technical diligence that gets done in an acquisition is actually, I mean, certainly it's better than what gets done for venture capital investments. But I, I've always been a little surprised at how light the technical diligence is during an acquisition. Typically, it's like confirmatory. Because fundamentally, like if your business is able to be sold, right, and, and so it's profitable, it's growing, it's doing you know, what it needs to do on the business metrics, then the buyers usually have the assumption that you have your shit together to some degree. They're like, well, it's not going to be totally fake. That being said, certainly during diligence, at least if you're talking a deal north of, say, 20 million, then there's likely to be technical diligence 
and they'll usually bring in, if it's a, say, a financial sponsor, they'll bring in an external technical team to do the diligence. And sometimes there are firms that specialize just in doing that. Or they'll have their internal sort of development team take a look. Quite often, like what they are looking for at that point is like, like I think most developers think of like, you know, how am I documenting the code? Like, can I explain the code that is working? Are we doing best practices as, as it relates to XYZ inside the code? And I find that most of the time, actually, what they're looking for is sort of more high level. It's like, is there a single point of failure in terms of either technically or with the person? Like, quite often what ends up happening in the smaller ones, is uh, smaller acquisitions, is that there's one guy who knows how a critical piece of this something works, whatever it is, like scheduling, whether it's how to bring the site up if it goes down. A lot of the time, what they're trying to ascertain is whether there is like sort of redundancy and business continuity in place. And so that they are not in a situation where they buy the company and then it goes down and it turns out that John, who was the only person who knew how something worked, has been fired or left or whatever. So it's usually quite surprising to people the kind of things that get asked. Certainly, like they'll be asking questions like, where are you hosting things? Typically, the more standardized the answers are, the better. So if you come and say, hey, you know, we have this custom rack that runs out of my brother's apartment and that's where we're serving everything in order to save, you know, 50 cents on the dollar on hosting cost, they're probably not going to be as impressed with that as if they just say, oh, yeah, it's just on AWS. It's easy to on AWS or whatever. They like standard things. They'll ask questions like higher level stuff, like what is your development procedures? Like, how does a feature, if, you, if a feature comes through from product, how does it get implemented? Like, what is the process by which things go into engineering? They'll ask questions like, what is your testing procedure? What's your deployment procedure? Usually it's, it's actually more higher level process stuff and people than it is like, okay, explain to me how you're modularizing your code. They will ask some of those questions, but they typically won't be. When I did diligence stuff, I would sometimes say, okay, well, show me the last 10 pull requests with the code. And that used to freak people out. But that level of detail and that low level detail is actually quite unusual, with the exception of where what you're selling is a very technical, very detailed technical product, where it's like it's critical that the people understand exactly how your product works. Whereas you'd be surprised a lot of the time for the business people doing acquisitions, it actually doesn't matter all that much specifically how you've written the code. As long as they understand there's a good process in there, this is something where they could hire more people and it's not, you know, completely Looney Tunes. It's not on some custom, if it's something that's hosted in your basement on a custom version of Lisp with a database that's no longer supported, that's going to be a problem. Even if it's not the, the <laughs> hack on PHP, but if it's PHP hosted on EC2, that's great. They're not really going to care that much about specifically which framework of PHP you're using or anything like that. That's sort of my high level view of it. I think you'd be surprised at yeah, what kind of thing they're looking for during diligence. And it's most often process people, like do you have this the checklist of things in place? Do you have version control? If you're using open source software, are you using that according to licensing? You know, are you publishing things to, that you need to publish under GPL? Things like that comes up much more often than I think most developers assume. They think that, ah, oh, I get into diligence, somebody will come through and they'll, they'll have me like, they'll sit there next to me and go through line by line of code and have me explain how it works. And that's that just, I've never seen that happen. Yeah, that's been in line with my experience as well. I've been involved on the 
sell side of fewer, a lot fewer deals than you, but still, if I were to put it, you know, personally, it's like two or three that are substantial enough that people wanted to review code. And then I think there were maybe four that I've been, I've been pulled into by startups that I've either invested in or an advisor or whatever. And that's typically the advice I give as well is no one cares about your code comments because the people buying it aren't developers and they don't need to get into that level of detail of the code. It's a lot like I've compared it to a real estate investor who buys investment properties will often buy multiple properties without ever seeing the properties because what they're looking at are the numbers. And if things have been rented for this many years and the maintenance has been XYZ for this many years, they want to make the numbers work. And, and if that happens, they don't care if the kitchen has granite or if it's fake granite or whatever because they're not living there. And that's, for better or worse, when a company is spending 10, 20, 30, 100 million dollars on a product, they're not buying it for the code quality. Unfortunately, as a developer, that's not what is driving the price. You know, again, it, unless it's like you said, it's some extremely limited IP where it's like we built the Google search engine and that's worth a bunch of money or whatever. But that's just not, that's not really what they're looking at. So I have a few things I jotted down for specifically when we, when we sold Drip. They were really concerned. They asked a lot about open, any open source stuff that we used. Oh yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, they want to make sure we didn't have, you know, there's certain types of licenses that essentially mean that if you use it, you should open source all of your code of the entire app. And we had been careful about that, but you have to prove that there's nothing in. And so they actually, they sent a consultant out who like brought a, a Raspberry Pi, opened it up out of the package, plugged it in. He said, I, I'm not going to walk away with any of your code or any devices that plugged into any of your machines. And he plugged it into Derek's laptop into this big scan of the code. And then he handed us the Raspberry Pi at the end, you know, and, and he was doing a big scan for, for patterns of license. I'm assuming there's headers or there's certain, much like a virus scanner, it just picks up a pattern of like, oh, ding, this is a red flag license. Absolutely. And actually, that's reflected usually. The, the open source thing is, I think most developer types think that it's no big deal to use open source. And it, that's true. It isn't. But it's a big enough liability that typically, if you're selling a software company, you have to warrant that you're not in violation of open source licenses. And so basically, what that means is that if you do that and they get sued, the acquirer gets sued because of GPL violations that you did, they'll come to you for the for the money. So it's that serious. So if you have very good clarity on like, these are exactly the licenses we're using. If we've made changes, for example, with a GPL, then we publish those changes as required by the license. Like that stuff is important. Yeah. And then the other thing that I've seen asked for a lot is not code related, but it's IP agreements. Do you have an IP assignment agreement from every contractor, every employee, everyone who has ever touched basically anything in your code? That can be a big deal. Backup and recovery is something else that, that they asked. And that's like you said. Disaster continuity. Yeah. Yep. It's like, how often do you back up? How often do you recover? How do you test your backups? That kind of stuff. And that's something I would include in a technical doc. I mean, it, depending on the size of the app, you could write up a nice technical, you know, the original question, right, is what should I document technically? And it can be a four or five page doc plus a network diagram that is kept up to date as best you can. Like that's, it doesn't have to be some 30 page home. In fact, we didn't even have a network diagram, I don't believe. And when Lead Pages was kind of doing some due diligence, Clay Collins flew out with their senior engineer, like a head of engineering. And he just said, walk me through on a whiteboard. And that was the network diagram they got. And they took a picture of it. <laughs> but it was like Derek writing things and talking through, oh, this is where there is a single point of failure in the database and blah, blah, blah. No, that was good enough for them. There was also a level of trust between Clay and I because he and I knew each other. He also knew that 
as an engineer working with a co-founder who was an engineer, we would say we have two and a half lines of unit tests for every line of production code, which that's pretty good. It implies that, hey, these guys probably know what they're doing. And so we were given a little bit of leeway there. And then the last thing I'll say is document the tools you use. So just high level languages, what editors you use, obviously the database, Postgres, MySQL, whatever, version control. We use GitHub on this you know, thing and it's never been not in public or whatever. So it's just the basics if you think about, but I, I think both of us, what we're saying is it's very unlikely that anyone will dig deeper than basically the top level things that we've said here. I think that's true. I think the way to think about it, the most helpful thing to think about it is the documentation isn't required to be added level of detail where if you got a fresh developer and gave him the documentation, that was sufficient for him to start developing features on the code. That's too detailed. Like the way you should think about it is, okay, what is like a project manager need to know? Like what does an engineering manager need to know about the process by which we build software here and how roughly how it's structured? That's the right level, I think, of documentation, at least to start. And then inevitably during the process, during some diligence, there'll be some further questions, but then they can dig into that. You don't need to spend, you know, write a hundred pages worth of documenting every single thing. I think that's probably a waste of time. Our next question is from Fabri, and he said, I bootstrapped Geltbox, a personal and SMB financial software as a side project for a few years. We've also developed our own banking data aggregation system for our B2C products. We've been approached a few times by companies to provide this service, the banking data aggregation, but haven't had much bandwidth to also take on the B2B opportunities, obviously of selling that to other businesses. Recently, I was offered to provide the aggregation service to another startup. At first, I agreed with the founder on a fee per user and a retainer. Later, he offered me 5% equity, I assume in, in the startup, to integrate the aggregation system, plus some additional funds uh, because he wanted more control and a commitment for me. I'm hesitant to accept this since the aggregation system still serves my business and has the potential to serve others. Also, it took a few years of work to get it right for only 5% equity in another startup. But I think it could negotiate that. What are your thoughts on this? And the, the subject line is business partnership or B2B client. So he's, he's kind of trying to decide between those, those two. It's a little muddy and we don't have all the details. I wish that we had more info, but you have, you have thoughts on this about going into a, a business partnership versus uh, keeping someone at arm's length as a client. Yeah, I mean, my gut feeling would be that this sort of 5% equity to get more control and commitment, like that, that I'd be extremely wary of. Just because like, what kind of control is he talking about? Like, and does this preclude you from doing changes that you want to do? Like, are you now required to maintain this in a way that fits their business rather than yours? Also, like, what is the value of 5% of the equity? Like, now you have to effectively do diligence on them to figure out what, are, what is the value effectively of what they're offering you for this. So it almost doesn't sound like a, like a partnership. It almost sounds more like a joint venture, that proposal. Although it, it's, it's quite vague, so it's hard to tell. But I think, like, certainly I would, I would be very wary of doing the 5% equity piece. I, this sounds to me more like you have an enterprise-type integration plan or, or white label plan or something like that. This is just like, it's easier to do this lighter touch and effectively say, okay, this is something that you can buy. It's going to cost a lot of money. Or if you're reselling it, then you have to give us a good chunk of the whatever revenue you're getting in. Like, I think that's a much better, at least starting point than getting to the point where like, it sounds like they effectively want, like this potential partner effectively wants to control how this piece is being built and maybe exclusively get access for themselves 
And like giving all that away for 5% equity in an unknown startup is not something that I would do without a lot more information. I mean, it depends. Like if the startup is Zoom, sure. <laughs> but if the startup is some no-name thing I've never heard of, then my genuine view is that, you know, I'd be very wary. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. I think anytime you take a minority stake in a private company that you have no control in, that has no liquidity prospects. Are you describing, are you describing Tiny Seed, Rob? No, of course not. <laughs> but I'm, I'm describing a lot of these stock deals. Whenever I hear there was an acquisition and I hear purchase price, I always want to know how much of that was stock. Because if it's stock in a public company, great. Good for you. You can sell that in six months or 18 months. But if it's a private company, like you are basically tying yourself to the fortune of that company for years. And so you can say, yeah, I got 20, 30, 40 million dollars in stock in a company that then goes bankrupt so you actually got nothing that's happened i mean to friends of mine actually like they sold their startup to a company this is like 2000 i guess 2001 got them old and they were like yeah i sold my company for 10 million bucks and they got 10 million dollars worth of stock in a startup that went to zero so it happens i know and that's why i mean if someone were to approach me and say hey i'm selling my startup and they want to give me a an all stock deal, I, it would, it, like you said, it just really depends on the company and, and their prospects and where you think they're going. But almost in, in all cases, I'd be like, look, you got to get enough cash that you feel good about this, that if that stock goes to zero, you at least don't have, you know, massive regret around it. I mean, that's true for that's true for the type of sort of M&A work we do, too. It's like, it's not unusual in a deal that's say $25 million that the founders get asked that said, okay, you get some cash, you get some like earnout, you get some maybe owner financing, and then you have to roll a portion of your proceeds into the new company. Usually the hurdle there is like, at that point, I always advise people like, then we need to do some diligence on the acquirer, like, you know, that they're not just uh, something that's going to blow up. So, so that's worth thinking about. If that gets done at that level, then, then you shouldn't just accept 5% and walk away. I mean, because there's all sorts of things like 5% preferred stock, 5% common stock. Are there any anti-dilution things in place? So that if you say, say it agrees for 5% equity, if there's no anti-dilution, this is common stock, then the, this, the other guy could just issue another uh, 10 million shares and dilute you down to 0.005%. And you have no recourse. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that's to me, I mean, I'm, I'm in the same boat. It's like, I feel like the B2B client is the first step in an integration and get to know them and how are they as a customer. And that's like, it's like the crawl, walk, run type thing, right? Or the, the dating before you get married type thing where it's like a B2B partnership, an acquisition, whatever. Often those relationships are built over time so that you can see how they operate and learn more about the people involved and the company involved. So if that's helpful, Fabri, next question is from Chris, and it's about email harvesting and spam. He says, I recently read an article published on Medium. It's about how to harvest email addresses. And in one of the discussions with Blue Tick, Mike Tabor has talked about warm versus cold emails. Can you guys comment on the practice of sending unsolicited email these days? If you get enough spam complaints, won't MailChimp, Constant Contact, Infusionsoft, etc., shut down your account. I get a reasonable amount of these. And if it's something I have zero interest in, the company sounds cheesy, or I'm certain I did not sign up, I often hit the spam button. I have two small companies and understand the need to fill up the funnel, but I'm annoyed that someone is taking up my time to click delete. And so before I toss it over to you, I do want to chime in that there's a very big difference. If you scrape emails and get what is in essence a cold email list, and you put that in MailChimp, Constant Contact, Infusionsoft, Drip, or anything, you will you will get banned. They will block your account because those tools are not designed for cold email. They're designed for warm email. 
folks who have opted in to hear from you. When this thing that Zapier was talking about, if you harvest emails or God forbid, buy an email list, that is where you could go to a tool like a blue tick that uses your own, you know, inbox, your own Gmail inbox or outbox in this case to send. Yesware, Tout app. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them. You probably know more. So that's where those won't ban you because it's use, it's sending from your email inbox. So it's not like it's not like their IPs are impacted. So with that, you want to comment on this? Sure. I mean, I think like like I agree. This is definitely not the tools to use. Although I'm constantly surprised at how many people are are running cold outbound processes using tools like this and don't realize how 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 close they are to getting uh, their whole account shut down. And and if they have their marketing stuff in there too, then uh, that's problematic. I mean, my view is like, and this is also in the can spam act. It's like actually sending cold business mail is not considered solicits mail in the business context is not considered spam. And I think effectively, like what's going on is what's annoying is not necessarily unsolicited it is unhelpful email where like you're getting an email and it's like it's clear that this person knows not only nothing about you and has never heard from you before but like doesn't really know what your business is you know like and a great example of this and, and it's just it's just to me it's just I, I get offended as a sales guy it's like i think like you should do enough research so that you at least have a half a chance to to know what kind of a company you're trying to email so a good example of this actually is i don't know if you saw this but we keep getting emails into the tiny cd email account at least I do. That says, hi, been really excited about what you guys are up to. They're a tiny seed. Just wanted to let you know that our B2B SaaS accelerator is open for applications and would encourage uh, tiny seed to apply. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you, you you have no idea what tiny seed is. <laughs> we're not a B2B SaaS company. We're, we're effectively your competitor. And so that's generally my view of it. It's like, Sales in general, like particularly when it comes to B2B sales, like the best stuff is almost like, it's almost like an outs- being an outsourced consultant for your prospects. Like you're effectively trying to figure out how do I reach out to this person or this company where I think or I have figured out that they can add significant value to their bottom line or whatever by using the tool that I'm providing. You know, you could imagine a consultant being hired by the company in question to figure out how to better do X, Y, Z so that we improve our bottom line and they get paid to go out and pick your tool. Well, the best kind of sort of consultative enterprise type sales is is effectively the inverse of that, where you've done enough research that you're confident that if this prospect took up your tool and used it, they would get significant benefit. And yeah, you're going to get a chunk of that as the sort of price you take for the, for the service, whatever. But I don't think you should email people unless you are pretty confident that this actually would be a value add for the for the company in question and it doesn't sound like chris are getting an awful lot of well-targeted emails and 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 similarly here i mean i i get a bunch it seems to me like anything on linkedin there's like outsourced software development firms are notoriously bad at this they just sort of blast everybody and and i think there's a there's certainly a a much better way to run that than what they're doing yeah i mean i have bought things. I've signed up for a couple SaaS apps that have cold emailed me over the years. I've also hired someone off of, uh, in essence, what was a cold email campaign, a consultant. So it, it doesn't can work. But let's say I've done it five times. Each of those times, it was really well targeted. And it was obvious that they knew 
I don't know, that they knew something and they were they were presenting something that made sense to me, not like a round of venture funding to an accelerator, right? Which is what I got an email this morning about that. And it's like, well, it was like, we have uh, to, to the tiny seat, my tiny seat address. It's like, we have a list of venture capitalists who invest in companies like yours. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Are you sure? I don't think, yeah. I don't think you do. <laughs> not the best target. And I mean, you should see the stuff we get to the podcast email address. It's probably 10 emails a day, maybe maybe seven or eight emails a day. A lot of it's guest pitches, but a lot of it's like SEO stuff, like let's trade links and let's do an article and this and that. And they're so, they're so badly targeted. You can just tell a mile away if they're actually a listener because they all act like they're a listener. But you can't just say, hey, I'm a big fan of the show because that, and that doesn't cut it anymore. You know, it's like, you really have to speak the language. So, all right. Thanks for the question, Chris. Hope that was helpful. Next question is from Adam Clinkett. It's about how to increase sales. He said, I let go of my salesperson this week. And this was about seven or eight weeks ago, right as the quarantine started. She's now employed on a commission-only basis. But navigating from here, what would you suggest I do to make sales? He put some ideas like starting a blog. Should I start uh, ads? Should I automate my sales flow as much as possible? It currently requires a demo. So he's talking about opening it up past the demo. Should I just focus on maximizing profitability out of existing customers or give existing customers a significant discount so that there's still customers on the other side of this in my industry? Obviously, this is industry dependent. I, I think he's in one of those, you know, I've been talking how it's like, it's about 10 or 15% of, of companies that I have knowledge of are like taking off because of everyone's working remote. 10 or 15% are completely getting decimated because they are involved in in things that when people are remote, they can't, can't be done. And then there's kind of this middle, let's say 70-ish, 70 to 80% that are just floating and just watching, you know, they're going to be, they're, they're slowing down maybe, but they're not, certainly not cratering and they're waiting to see what happens on the other side of, of the quarantine. And I think Adam's uh, company falls within that. So you have thoughts. I mean, he has a lot of, he has a lot of ideas here. I have some, I have some like meta thoughts, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think like, obviously I think, you know, this was asked a month or two, I guess ago. And I, I think if they're U.S.-based, I think it probably was a mistake to let them go because you could have gotten PPP to pay for it, this person's... I believe he's in Australia. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's even better because <laughs> like in Australia, I, I, don't, I actually don't know about Australia, but certain places like the U.K., there's like proper paycheck protection in the sense that they're basically effectively paying a percentage of salary to keep them on, on payroll. So like that's my first high-level comment is like that's something to look into like you know just firing people you know really nearly might not actually be the best move the the second thing which you know i have no idea what this product is <laughs> so it's a little hard in terms of his specific ideas it's like blog i haven't really done this that to me sounds like someone who i perhaps doesn't realize how long the process is to build out a significant organic funnel through a blog like i've seen several companies you know it's decided oh we need to, to blog to get more customers and then they spend three or four months posting a blog post every week and then they see zero inbound interest and then they shut it down so so i think like if it's a hair on fire like oh crap like we're going down we just need more customers immediately starting a blog is not going to do it in time i think it's a good thing to do you know potentially by yourself but it's certainly not something that you could just be like oh yeah i'm going to start blogging and then customers will come strolling through the door the virtual door focus on ads i think that's the one of the more interesting ones so so obviously it depends on your industry and whether people are there's a complete sort of acquisition as it were freeze or like spending freeze or whether people are potentially still looking and and like i've actually seen several companies do pretty well right now with ads because they're cheaper than they used to be like everything is is at a discount 
like if you go to Facebook ads or, or Google CPC, and it can be immediate and it can scale. It's like, I actually think now is a pretty unique time to experiment with advertising just because, like you said, there's, a, there's that a discount and, and sort of if your industry is amenable and still buying, then that potentially could work really well and it can scale pretty quickly. The other stuff, honestly, I don't know. Automate the sales process. Well, that's good. Currently requires a demo. Give existing customers a significant discount so there's still customers on the other side. I wouldn't volunteer it. <laughs> I would probably, yeah, I would be like, you know, people start canceling. I'd reach out and say, hey, what's going on? Like, you guys struggling? You need a discount? We can help you out. Discount or deferment, right? Hey, next three months, next three months, you don't have to pay, you know, next two months or whatever. He has a, it's scheduling software. I, I've actually talked to Adam before. He's, he's a super cool dude. He, I was trying to remember exactly what it was, but I, I think it's for, I think it is for a lot of in-person businesses. I think like driving schools or, um, you know, just whatever, any, anything that needs scheduling and kind of a, a back office stuff. So for him, I would think about deferments. Yeah, particularly if you can say like, if you have an annual plan, say like, okay, it's coming up, you don't have to renew it, like just renew it now, we won't charge you for three or four months, and it'll run from a year from then. Something like that makes sense, I think. Because I think there's a, a fair amount of industries which are in a position where they, they sort of know that they're going to reopen, I guess, summer, fall time, hopefully. And part of the stuff they're doing right now is looking at their processes and things. And it's like, if you can land them now, and like, essentially book the revenue for the fall, that's, that's super helpful coming out of this. Yeah, I've heard of a, a few companies, I've been watching a few companies do that, where they are looking out to September and trying to find folks now and basically giving them free access until then, such that if things do reopen before then, you know, the, the customer gets some value out of it. So yeah, I mean, it, it really depends, Adam, I think on, you know, if your leads have completely dried up, is there some ads or some outreach you can do to companies that, because if, uh, like you said, if they're totally shut down, then what are the owners or the managers doing? Are they thinking about how to improve the processes? You know, is this a time to potentially pitch that? But if you still have leads coming in and your salesperson is on a commission basis and she's able to handle them, I, I don't, you know, I don't know that I see a huge issue with that. So thanks for the question, Adam. I hope that was helpful. In our Volset, that's all the questions we have for today. If folks want to keep up with you, they can head to Anar Volset on Twitter, or they can head to tinyc.com slash invest. Is that, the, your, is that your contact info now? That's my contact info now. It's the, it's the easiest way to get my direct attention. Exactly. <laughs> you send a form there and you, you bet. You'll get a response pretty quickly. That. Uh, that's cool. So yeah, thanks for taking the time, man. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks again to Anar for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you have a listener question, we only have about five or six in the queue. And remember, if you record an audio file, send me a Dropbox or a Google Drive link to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. That will go to the top of the stack. I don't believe we have any voicemails right now. So literally next Q&A episode, it would get answered. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.